God, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be able to open your word. What a privilege it is to listen to the words of Jesus. I pray that you would help us to listen, not as critics or as people standing over or above your word, but instead as worshipers, ready before you even speak the first word to submit to you. Lord, you in these moments want to draw us into you. I pray especially if the, that if there's anyone here who hears the topic of prayer and, and immediately becomes guilty in their own spirit, immediately pulls away from you because of lack of prayer, I pray that today the opposite effect would take place in our hearts, that rather than focusing on our own performance, we would instead focus on the word of the Lord that says, come, speak with me. I pray that we would take this as an invitation rather than as a condemnation, and that we all would step closer towards you today and this week in prayer and find that, that relationship to be sweet and satisfying. Pray that you would help us even now as we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ to understand your word and then to respond with worshipful, worshipful obedience. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. There's a story told of a, a famous scientist who is well-known in his field, and a young student, an apprentice, said, I want to study with you. And after entreating the professor, the professor said, okay, well, today we'll start. And so he had the young man come into his lab, and he simply pulled out what would have been a very common little fish. And he said, I want you to just sit there and I want you to observe everything you can about this fish. So the student thought, okay, this is an odd way to start, but I'll indulge. So he got out a notepad and started to write down some concepts, some things he saw. It was a pretty basic fish and he kind of ran out of things in about 10 or 15 minutes and quickly went to go look for the professor. When he couldn't find him, he returned to the lab and decided, well, I've got nothing better to do. Let me look at the fish some more. And so that's what he did. And so he continued to make notes and finally decided, maybe I'll draw the fish and see if that brings out anything more, and it did. And several hours later, the professor came in. And he said, well, I see you're still observing the fish. This is good, and tell me what you've learned. So he started in on it, and the professor immediately stopped him and said, no, you still missed some of the most basic details. I want you to go back and look again. Well, the student, perhaps a little exasperated, went back again and found that Throughout the rest of the afternoon, he kept seeing things he had yet to see before just by sitting in that moment and observing what was before him. There's a very real sense in which this passage here is perhaps like that fish to us. It seems rather self-evident. We've heard messages on this. We've perhaps memorized this passage of Scripture. It would be very easy for us then to simply listen to what Jesus says and bypass it. By the student's own testimony, by the end of the day, he realized, oh, okay, now I see what the professor was trying to get me to do. I hadn't started the, the process of observation. What I want us to do then is to look again at a very important text, a familiar text, but a text that rewards deep observation. And I trust that you're ready for that this morning. One of the things in education that I've always found interesting is that it's often the people who don't know what they need to know who are the ones sitting under the education. You go to any High school classroom, the students usually aren't there because they're just desperate to learn the topic. High schoolers, is that correct? Probably, okay. I don't even have to ask that one. You go to college, it's the same thing. Maybe they want a job, but they're not super intrigued in the exact topic at hand that day. But if you've ever been to a classroom with people who are professionals who are then seeking additional education, it's an entirely different experience, isn't it? Because they know what they need, and they're asking questions from experience. There's a very real sense in which that's the kind of questioning God wants us to have. And we'll see how Jesus deals with these learners, and we are in that category as well. 
Well, before we begin, uh, I want you to look just down with me briefly at an intriguing part to this passage that it's easy to skip over. Let's observe one thing here, and that's simply that the passage in Luke 11 starts with the fact that Jesus was praying in a certain place. Now, like I mentioned, the book of Luke uniquely details Jesus' prayer life, especially at key points. And let me just outline some of these for you. Chapter 3, verse 21, we find that only Luke tells us that Jesus was praying during his baptism when the Spirit of God descended upon him as a dove. Only Luke tells us that. Chapter 6, verse 12, we find only in Luke that Jesus has been praying all night long in the mountains before choosing his disciples. Only Luke tells us that. Luke, in chapter 9, verse 18, tells us that before he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am, that he had been praying that entire night. Only Luke tells us that. Luke also teaches us and shows us that Jesus was a man of prayer during his transfiguration. Only Luke, even though all the gospel writers detail this account, only Luke tells us he was praying during that moment when the transfiguration occurred. Only Luke, also in here in chapter 11, tells us that it was Jesus' prayer that actually brought on this lesson. So you see how this is not a small topic to the gospel writer. And this wasn't a small thing in Jesus' life either. Jesus was a man of prayer. And it's actually this observation of the rabbi, of the teacher, that brings about the, the inquisition from his students. This is not something they've seen him merely lecture on. They've seen him pray day in and day out. They've seen him pray through the night. They've seen him pray during trials. They've seen him pray during successes. They've seen him pray publicly. In fact, just in chapter 10, he's prayed publicly for all to hear, although some other gospel writers also mention that. Jesus then practices this life So when we're coming to listen to Jesus speak, this is not a man who's merely speaking theological truths detached from real life. This is a man who's lived the life of prayer. Now, I think if I were to ask, of all the people who've ever lived on earth, who would you think would least need to pray? I think I'd probably say Jesus. (laughs) What would he need to pray for? He's God. And yet what we find is everywhere Luke turns, when he turns the camera on Jesus, Jesus is praying. This is the kind of spirit and attitude Jesus wants to grow into us. Like I mentioned even in my prayer, I think oftentimes one of Satan's greatest ploys when it comes to the topic of prayer is to use it primarily as a club against us. Because it's people who feel beat down by prayer and the lack of prayer in their own lives who won't listen to this message. They won't hear what Jesus has for them. So if you this morning say, oh, great, two weeks on prayer, more things I'm not doing biblically, you don't let Satan rob you of these, these gospel truths. No, this is an invitation from a man who knows very well what it is to pray. To pray early, to pray late, to pray often. Jesus, then, is a, a man who practices a life of prayer. Secondly, Jesus teaches a pattern of prayer. Jesus has recently actually just been commanding prayer in Luke chapter 10. He's telling them to pray earnestly that God would send out laborers into the harvest. This is not the first time nor the last time Jesus will tell his disciples, his followers, to pray. Just like it's not the first or last time we're hearing this. This isn't news to any of us. Oh, we're supposed to pray? No, that's not the case. But there's something different here, and that is that they've observed him long enough to now want to know, Jesus, what does this look like? They say, if you notice in verse 2, sorry, verse 1, when he had finished, it's like they're standing around the master listening to him pray or maybe observing him quietly pray. He finishes, and one of his disciples said, says to him, Lord, teach us to pray. They say, as John taught his disciples to pray. 
John had taught his disciples, and uh, that's what we find here. But it's actually not the disciples who first bring this up. Do you know who first brings up the fact that John taught his disciples to pray? It's the Pharisees. In Luke chapter 5, the Pharisees actually point this out, and they say, John taught his disciples to fast and pray. Why aren't your disciples fasting? This is something that was known. John was known for it. His disciples were devout in their prayer and in their fasting. Now, is it possible that Jesus had not yet taught them how to pray? I'm not sure that's the case. In fact, you might remember the passage in Matthew where Jesus prays something very similar to this prayer. There's some debate about whether or not Jesus had already taught that, and this is a separate occurrence, or if Luke is simply compressing Jesus' teaching on prayer in this text. But it seems clear that through all of these times of prayer, through all of these years of ministry, Jesus would have taught them to pray, but it seems like they're in need of some further instruction. And this is a good check for us because at this moment, what we need to do is actually put ourselves in the same position. We actually need to take on the the mental model of a disciple, of a learner. In other words, right now, we need to say, okay, Lord, I know how to pray, but can you teach me how to pray? I want to listen from you, to you. Teach me, instruct me how to pray. There's a very real sense in which unless we take on that spirit or that heart towards God and his things, we'll miss what Jesus has to say here. It's only, we could say it like this, it's only the real students who will learn, not merely those who attend the class. So this morning, are you a student of Jesus? Jesus is ready to teach his disciples, and he gives them a pattern. Matthew says it like this, pray like this. And I'm going to break these out into a couple of different uh, points, two points here. If we were to categorize the request, these five requests, it would be pray for God's agenda in verse 2, and pray for your needs. Some of those needs are physical, some of them are spiritual. And if you miss those, they'll be on the next slide too. So uh, pray for God's agenda and pray for your needs. The tension and the uh, proportion of these is also important. Jesus is giving us a pattern to, to fit our own prayers over, a rubric that we can lay over our own prayer life. Jesus wants us then to adopt this as students of his. So in this pattern of prayer Jesus teaches, let's look first of all at that agenda, praying for God's agenda in verse 2. Verse 2 says this, and he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. First of all, he tells them to pray to God as their Father. Now, the significance of that should not be lost on us. To, To claim God as your personal Father is not something that's natural for all of us. You'll hear people casually say, you know, we're all God's children, but that is not the teaching of the Bible. And these Jewish men would have known that. Not everyone is a child of God. That is something granted to you, given to you. In fact, Jesus has just been talking about this. This is only available to believers. If you look just back a couple of verses in verses 21 and verse 22, it seems like this is what Jesus is referring to. He's told us that it's only through a a connection to the Son that you can be Calling that you can call God your Father. It's actually a connection to Jesus that enables this prayer in the first place. He simply says this in verse 21. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and he said, I thank you, Father. He mentions God as Father five times in these short verses. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows... No one knows who who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son 
chooses to reveal him. In other words, Jesus says this, only the Son can get you a connection with the Father so that you can say, Father. Now, that's probably not news to any of you. And nor would it have been news to the disciples at this point in Jesus' teaching. But Jesus doesn't want us to miss the significance of that. So notice what he does. It's like he breaks from his teaching and he points the disciples back to it. It's like he highlights what he just said. He underscores it. He points arrows to it and he says, realize what I just said. Look at verse 23 and verse 24. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. They didn't understand the kind of connection that you're going to have with God to call him your father. Jesus says, time out, guys. This is a really big deal. Now, if they were privileged in their day, think about our day now. They had yet to see the cross and the resurrection. They had yet to have God's spirit permanently indwelling them. They had yet to have the written canon, and we have all of those. Paul, uh, Peter himself, who was at that transfiguration, said what we have in the Bible is a more certain word. What we have is a higher privileged position than them. We can call God our Father with a much higher degree of knowledge than even they could. Oh, the eyes that would have seen the day that we're in right now. Jesus starts his whole prayer with this, Father, and that is no small word, Father. He goes on then to list out the first two requests underneath here. He simply says, Father, hallowed be your name, or set your name apart as holy. Now, that word name I've underlined because in, especially in Jewish writing, to describe the name of somebody was to describe their essence. Their name is all that they were. What Jesus is saying then is, God, would all that you are be set apart as holy? The word holy or hallowed simply means to make sanctified, to set apart, to make it special. This week, I asked the kids at Backyard Bible Club, I asked them if they had any special pets or stuffed animals. A few years ago, we were, uh, I think it was last year, in fact, we were driving to Indiana. We stopped in a hotel and um, got everything thrown together, got the kids situated. It was after a long day of driving. We packed up in the morning, ran out, and realized that we left Ella's favorite stuffed kitty. I forget what the cat's name is. I think she just calls it kitty. All right. So we get on the road and we realize, oh no, we lost kitty. Well, thank, thankfully, Amazon Prime is, is great. So we... Um, ordered the same cat to show up at Megan's parents' home. We get there, we just, you know, oh, look, we found Kitty. But she knew it wasn't Kitty. It wasn't Kitty at all. And to this day, she'll say, remember when you took my cat and then gave me a different cat and called it Kitty? Yes, I remember how we lied to you. I'm a horrible parent. Thank you for that reminder. The point is simply this, that there are some things that are special to us. They're set apart. They're different than everything else. No replacement was going to work for her. Obviously, in a much more serious sense, what we're saying is that really God needs to have a space, place of special privilege. Nothing gets to be in his spot. Now, that's an easy thing to say and a hard thing to live, isn't it? It's easy to say God's in that special spot until your job starts getting in your way or being pulled out from under you or until you're not sure what step to take as a family next. And suddenly the thing that obsesses, that you obsess over, the thing that's your full focal point, isn't God at all. He's kind of a byproduct or maybe just a tool to get you what you need. It's easy to say God is going to be in that hollowed place until you start to run dry on funds. And suddenly it, you snap at your family members for the smallest expense. 
No, what Jesus is praying for here is a request that God would hallow his name. But the way that God often sets his name apart in our lives is actually through us, isn't it? We could say it like this. God's name is hallowed, is set apart, is sanctified in the same way that it's profaned in our experience. It's through our actions. The book of Ezekiel in chapter 36, verses 22 and following, Jesus talks, or God talks about this this profaning of his name, and he says, I'm going to set you apart so that my name will be set apart. By asking God to set his name apart, to sanctify his name, to make his name special, you're also actually submitting to him. You're actually saying this, would you use me to set your name apart? We could say it negatively like this. You can't set God's name apart while at the same time making like your feed of social media just a list of complaints, right? Because at that moment, what you're actually saying is, God really can't handle what I have. So that would be a way God's name would be profane. Same thing is true when it comes to the way you look at and talk about politics. Isn't it so easy, the, the kind of the, the verbiage of today is just to complain and, and grouse about the politics around us. So that becomes part of your identity. Every night, it's hours of watching cable TV or, or reading certain excerpts or or developing theories about things, and those kinds of things might be fine in their place, but what can often happen is they grow to such a size. They take over the way we think and move that what we're actually communicating to other people is this. God isn't in control. I'm fearful because anything could happen. You're actually communicating something about God's name in that moment. You're profaning his name. You're making it common. You can't have speech that's full of gossip. Ignore the clear words of God to you. If you're wanting God's name to be hollowed or set apart. So to ask God to do this is also to say, God, can I be part of that sanctifying? That when people look at how I treat you and the things around me that they say, wow, this God must be something different than everything else I've grown accustomed to. A God who's in control and who's good. A God who's good, especially in hard times. This God is different. He's set apart. That's how God sanctifies his name. And so to ask God to do this is also to say, God, use me to sanctify your name. The second request here for God's agenda is simply this, to fulfill God's kingdom promises. He says it like this, your kingdom come, or may your kingdom come. Now, there's a, there's a real sense in which the kingdom is there, because the kingdom's there when who's there? The king, right? And the king is there. But there's another sense in which this kingdom has only been inaugurated. It has yet to kind of fully flesh itself out because one day we're told that every knee, every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow and say, he's the Lord. In other words, what we're asking God to do in this prayer is to fulfill what God has already promised. Now, this is not an uncommon pattern in the Bible. In fact, we find passages like Isaiah 62, verses 6 and 7 where God actually says, those of you who put the Lord in remembrance, or we could rephrase it in common English like this, those of you who remind the Lord, do not stop until he does what he said he'd do. And that passage is talking about Jerusalem's place in the future. God actually wants us to remind him of the things he said he would do, to bring that up to him and say, do what you said. It's that act of faith, of believing that he'll do it, that causes us to come back to him again and again. I remember when we were first married, Megan used to ask me a question that kind of got under my skin. 
she would come to me and she would say, do you love me? And I would say, yes, I love you. And then like five minutes later, she'd say, do you love me? And I was like, yes, I love you. Stop asking me the question again or I'm not going to, no, I'm just kidding. But in that moment, I suddenly realized, oh, what she wants, she's not doubting it. She wants to hear it. She wants me to say that again and again, you know, the thick-headed husband here. There's a very real sense in which us saying, God, will you do what you said you would do? Is us telling God, I trust you. You'll do it. Say it again. Yes, I'll do it. Say it again, God. Say you'll do it. Yes, I'll do it. Would you fulfill everything like Philippians 1.6 says? Would you bring my salvation to completion, God? Would you do that? Yes, I will. Okay. God, would you, would you bring my salvation to completion? Yes, I will. There's a sense in which by bringing these requests to God and saying, God, do what you said. I want your, your kingdom to go over the whole earth. I want you to come again. There's a sense in which by asking that, what you're actually doing, what God hears it as is faith. God, I believe you. You'll, you'll do that. There's a sense in which prayerlessness about things that God has already promised is also faithlessness and the fact that God will do what he said. So God tells us to pray for his agenda. Secondly, he says to pray for our needs. And we'll be quicker and pick up our, our speed here. First, he says to pray for our common daily needs. To pray for our common daily needs, he says it like this, give us each day our daily bread. He uses a, a word here for bread that's a little bit different. It's a word that could just mean food in general. And the idea probably is that it's just our common everyday needs. This word daily itself is actually a unique word. It's not used almost at all, even in ancient literature. It likely means something like today's bread or enough just for now or the common bread, what I need just for now. This is what we need. Now, there's a sense in which what we don't pray for says just as much about what we think of God as what we do pray for. In other words, what would be true about your view of God and your view of yourself if you never prayed for your common everyday needs? What you'd actually be saying to God is, God, I have these things. I might need your help for other things, but I don't need your help for this. Well, of course, that's not true, but there's actually a sense in which by getting into this posture about regular daily things, God is, in a sense, molding us and molding our prayer lives, our hearts towards Him, to a place of utter dependence. The Bible itself, of course, communicates that from our very first moments, from being in our mother's womb, that it's God who knits us together. He's the one who gives us every beat of our heart, every breath we breathe. Life, Paul says in Acts 17, comes from God. So there's a very real sense in which we can't help but be dependent on God, but it's our knowledge of that dependence that Jesus is after. And so he tells us to pray for our daily needs. Secondly, he tells us, or he asks God, forgive us our sin debt. Well, Luke says it like this, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, using that word debt like Matthew does, talking about our sins in that way. Luke 7, 41 perhaps gives us the best illustration of what this looks like, this combination between being forgiven and being a forgiving person. It's where he asks Simon when he's in his house, and the, the woman has come in and is, is anointing Jesus' feet and wiping it with her hair. He says, who forgives, or who, uh, who's been forgiven more? And he lists off these two different people. Somebody who's been forgiven much, who loves more? The one who's forgiven much or the one who's been forgiven little? Simon says, well, I suppose the one who's been forgiven much. There's a sense in which when you recognize your position before God and the fact that you've been forgiven, it produces a kind of love, not only for God, but also for others. 
So that this forgiveness in the end of verse 4 isn't a grounds for God forgiving us. It's simply an extension of what God has already done in the heart of a believer. Or like the, the, ser- the servant who was forgiven much in the book of Matthew. And then went and wrung the neck of the guy who, who owed him just a little bit. It's hard to imagine that happening because that's not the case for people who have been forgiven. They are themselves forgiving. This is what Jesus is saying. It's not the grounds, but rather an extension of God's forgiveness of us. Finally, the third request here to protect us. I put it like this, from crushing tests. The word test could be translated either as temptations. James 1 tells us God doesn't tempt us. He doesn't tempt any man. Or it could be translated as a test, as a trial that's intended to make you harder. Now, Luke actually is one of the ones who tells us in Luke chapter 4 that God led Jesus, he uses the same word, into temptation in the wilderness. So it seems like what Jesus is saying is not that God wouldn't bring us into these moments of of intense testing for the sake of changing us, but that those testings wouldn't crush us. Don't lead us, in a sense, it's like this, God, don't lead us if you won't go with us. It's like what Moses says. God, if you're not going with us, don't, don't put me in that point of temptation. The whole of what Jesus has gone through and what he's teaching, it seems like that is his point here, that God, don't put me in a, a position of, of crushing testing. These patterns for prayer. Notice not only are we praying for God's agenda to take place first and primarily, but that even in our request of needs, it's not just the common everyday things, but it's especially our spiritual state. These are the patterns God wants to bring into us. It's been said that average teachers prepare good lectures. Good lecturers can respond to students' questions at the moment, but great teachers can anticipate the questions before they're asked. What Jesus is going to go on to do in, these next, in this next section is to tell two different stories that anticipate the kind of doubts and questions that you and I have. Okay, God, I understand I need to pray like this, but now before we can even ask the question, Jesus is going to get out an answer. So Jesus, in these answers, reveals really our trouble with prayer, and it's this, it's understanding God's heart. Our problem with prayer is actually we don't yet fully understand God's heart towards us. So let's briefly look at these two passages. Jesus reveals God's heart in prayer. Number one, we could ask the question that was unasked like this. Why does God respond to petitioners, to prayers, to people who pray? Jesus starts, in both of these, he has a similar pattern. He starts with an example that he assumes has an obvious answer, and it would have been a comical story to his people. Now, this is one of these passages that's often misunderstood because we don't take the time to understand kind of the cultural understanding of what's going on here. So, first of all, I want you to notice, where's the punctuation in this sentence, all right? Who wants a grammar lesson? Look at verses 5, 6, 7. It's at the very end of verse 7. It's one long question, right? And that's important to keep that together. Number two, he's going to describe a scenario that they would have known well, but we might need some help, and that would be that oftentimes these families lived in single-room homes. Sometimes they would have a, a mat kind of above the main surface where sometimes their primary animals would stay below. They would all sleep up together in the same surface, and they would have one single bar that would open and close the door. We also need to understand a little bit about kind of just their cultural of hospi- culture of hospitality. God had all the way back in Deuteronomy told them, you're the ones out of all the people of the earth that should be kind to sojourners because you were sojourners. They were instructed in the law to actually extend hospitality, especially the outsiders. This was part of Jewish culture. In fact, 
at this time, these little tiny homes, when you would have somebody come by your home, even if you didn't know them, it was a cultural stain not to provide for them. It would say something bad about your town. So this, there was some cultural stigma associated to this question. So that Jesus is going to tell a story that he assumes everybody knows the answer to. And the answer is, of course not. All right, you ready for the story? It's a question story. He said, which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. That's one long question. He paints this whole scenario. Which of you has a friend like that? And he expects them to chuckle and say, none of us do. None of us has a friend like that. Now, there's a lots of he's and him's and friends and them. So let me kind of give you some names to attach to these. Let's, let's pretend I'm the friend who had somebody visit me, all right? Let's say Justin came in out of town. Justin, congratulations. You're part of this sermon now, all right? And my name's Chris. That's Justin. And let's say Greg is at his house, all right? So which of you has a Justin, all right? Who, oh, sorry, which of you has a Greg who goes to him at midnight and says, Greg, lend me three loaves for Justin has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And Greg will answer from within, don't bother me, the door's shut and my children are with me in bed, I cannot get up and give you anything, all right? So that's the scenario. Does that help you kind of piece apart who's what? So I've got a friend who's come in town and I've already made my food for the day. Now in their day, they would have all baked their own food each day, their own bread each day. So I've already used up all my food. These loaves were small loaves. Three would have been enough for probably a meal. And I, I have a friend come to me, Justin, and he shows up at my door, and I've got nothing for him. Now, not only is this some kind of cultural stain on me, but, I mean, I would do this for a, a, a nobody, much less for Justin. He shows up. I don't have anything. I say, I know who I could ask. Out of everyone in this valley, I'm going to run over to, to Pastor Greg's house. I knock on his door. And he lives in a single-family home with his, I don't think he would like this. All right, sorry. Well, he's not here. He should have been here, all right? He lives in a single-family home, and he's sleeping on top of a mat. There's a single door to the house. I knock on it. He opens it, and he, he says, sure, I'll give you three loaves. That's the understanding. Now, what Jesus actually wants us to point his attention to is not whether he's going to give us loaves. That's a foregone conclusion. Of course he's going to give me loaves if he has it. That's what Jesus' point is. Jesus wants us to look at his motive. He draws our attention to the motive. So listen to how Jesus says this. I tell you, though he won't give, get up and give him anything because he's this friend. You see, the motive is actually the, the point that Jesus is trying to make. Though he's not going to give him up anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So Jesus actually says, of course he's going to give him bread, but why? Why is he going to give him bread? And Jesus says, first of all, I'm going to tell you what he's not going to do, why he's not going to do it, and then I'll tell you why he will do it. He says, let me tell you about this man's heart. He's not going to say, wow, Chris is such a good friend of mine, I feel like getting up in the middle of the night. He's not going to do that. Here's why he's going to help him. And this could be taken one of two ways, either Chris's impudence or Greg's impudence. And the word itself means something more like his unashamed audacity. And probably this is more culturally, culturally related. In other words, it could either be this. I say, Justin's come. I know Greg will help me. Well, at that moment, I've said something about my relationship to Greg. And Greg doesn't want to lose face on that. He thinks I'm going to help him. Of course, i got to help him. I can't let him down in this moment. It's, it's likely that. That's how I've taken this. So in other words, Jesus says this. He's going to help him, but let me tell you why. It's simply because he feels that kind of pressure because of the entrustedness that he's been given by, his, by Chris. Now, what he's going to do next is now draw a contrast. 
Jesus commands prayer through contrast. Having pointed our attention to the motive of the reason why he helped, now it's like Jesus flips the table and says, now, if you're thinking about God that way, that God kind of feels obligated to help you, you misunderstand the heart of God. The question that they hadn't asked is, why would God respond to me? Maybe you've come to God like that before. Maybe this morning you came to God like that. God, I'm here again. I really need this thing. Almost as if God is like, all right, this guy won't stop bugging me. Let me help him. Sometimes that's even how we've taken this passage before. That this is, in a sense, us bugging God until he finally listens to us. But that's not the case. It's actually us coming to him because we say, he'll help me. And rather than leaving God's motivation a mystery, he actually tells us, here's what God would say to you. Jesus says, here's what I say to you. Look at verse 9. That's exactly the emphasis here. I tell you as a way of Jesus, underscoring his authority, him being the friend here in this moment. I tell you, it's like he underscores himself. This is my word to you. Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you'll find. Knock. It's almost like he's put you back in that house. You knock, I'll open the door to you. Jesus says, here's my heart towards you. I want you to ask. I'm not put off by it. I don't feel obligated by it. If I'm the friend behind the door as asleep at night, I'm saying, please ask me. Please ask me. That's what God's saying. It's actually our view of God that, depend, that, that changes how often and what the content and quality of our prayer is like. So if you know God's like this, then it would make sense to pray for your daily needs, wouldn't it? It would make sense to pray for the smallest of things. It could be something simple, as simple as a parking space. God wants to know that. I need a parking space, God. Help me. God wants to answer that. It could be something as, as large as a life-threatening illness. God's not put off by that. He doesn't feel obligated in any way to, to, to just be cut out of social pressure or, or you putting him on the spot. He wants you to come to him. He's asking. He initiated it, not you. Right now, he initiated it. He said, ask me. Jesus then asks a second question, or answers a second question that is yet to be asked, and that is, why does God not answer us how we want? You might say, okay, I get this, teacher. You say to ask. I ask, and you don't give me what I want. Jesus has already anticipated that you'll doubt that way. Isn't that natural for us to think that way? It's all fine and good if my life's fine, but when I keep asking over and over again, and I see no change or no heart movement from God towards me, it causes me to, to doubt. Once again, Jesus gives an example that has an obvious answer. And what he's going to do is to point to the motive, but let's, let's take him one at a time. He says this in verse 11. What father among you, if, he, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? What's the obvious answer? No father, all right? Nobody's going to do that. Now, notice that next he's going to draw our attention to the motive. He says this in verse 13, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. All right, so what he's actually doing is he's pointing our attention to, to the motive of the father. There's a sense in which when God doesn't give us what we want, Jesus says this, when you look at what God's given you, instead of, let's say you ask for bread, you say, God, I really, really want bread. Let's see, let me make sure I line up the, the serpents with the right things. Fish, serpent, egg, scorpion. Okay, there we go. All right, so you ask for a fish. And God gives you something else. If you call it a scorpion, you're actually 
putting God's motive on trial. God, or your, God's heart towards you on trial. God, you're being evil towards me. Because what is a scorpion and what is a snake? These things are not just alternative gifts, alternative food sources. They're evil, aren't they? And that's actually what Jesus is trying to get us to pay attention to. What, what do we accuse God of when we don't get what we ask for? Jesus says this, be careful you don't accuse God of being evil. Is it true that God gives us different things than we ask for often? Yes, it can be. Jesus says this, know this ahead of time. It's not because he's evil. He's not giving you an evil gift. He's here to give you something good. He draws our attention to motive, and then Jesus commands prayer from the lesser to the greater. The end of verse 13 says this, if you are evil... You know how to give good gifts. That's the lesser. How much more will the heavenly Father, again, using this term for God, that's only appropriate for those who are truly Christians, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Now, remember the period that they're at in church history here. They don't yet have the indwelling Spirit. And so to have the Spirit would be to say, to have God's special anointing for some task. Like David was given the Spirit of God, or the Spirit of God left Saul when he was no longer under God's favor, or the Spirit of God was given to the, the crafters at the temple in the book of, of Numbers. This spirit of, the Spirit of God would then rush upon people for certain specific tasks. And what he's saying is that of all the gifts you can imagine, what's the best one you can imagine? Jesus' disciples would say, well, the Spirit of God upon my ministry, upon what I had to do, God's own personal aiding in my ministry. He says, he'll even give you that. In other words, when you ask God something, and he doesn't give you what you ask for. Don't accuse him of something evil. Know this. If God would give me even his Holy Spirit, then I know this about God's heart towards me. It's good. It may be that you've long asked God for some deep request. It has been so heavy on your heart. For some time now, you, maybe for the first time, you recognize that you've actually been accusing God of being evil towards you. Because not only has he not given you what you've wanted, but he's given you something that to your eye looks harmful. Be careful, Jesus says. Do not accuse God of that. Is it possible that what God has given you is actually for your good? Is that possible? Are you okay not knowing all the rationale behind that? Are you okay trusting in a father like that? I have a few applications and then we'll be done here. Number one, I just want to simply ask a question. What does your prayer life tell you? Does it tell you about you, your thoughts about you? What does it tell you about your thoughts about God, your knowledge of him, and your thoughts about the world around you? I just want to point your attention with a few statements first that malformed emphases reveal malformed views, by which I mean if all of your prayers are simply about your physical needs, that actually says something about your view of God and your view of your own needs, doesn't it? So these proportions, these, the pattern of prayers is meant to actually shape our views of God, ourselves, and the world around us. Number two, hesitancy in prayer betrays a hesitancy in God. To wonder, should I knock on his door? I don't know if he wants to hear me. It betrays actually a thought about God, God's heart towards you. And here's what Jesus says, ask, knock. I can't wait to open the door to you, he says. Thirdly, accusations in prayer betray a mistrust of God. Maybe you realize, you know what, for the first time, I, 
I haven't gotten what I wanted, and I've realized maybe this morning for the first time, I'm actually, in my heart, have been accusing God of being evil towards me. Or really, it's just that I don't know why he's doing what he said. I don't want to mistrust God like that. He's good. What I would encourage you with, then, as we go out as a practical daily application starting today, is that you develop a kind of prayer life that Jesus is indicating here. A kind of prayer life that actually says certain things about God, to God, and to you. I want to encourage you with something simple. I I think most of us would say, "I, I need to pray more. Many of us would probably say, I need to pray at all. So let's start. Let's do that. This is an invitation, not a club. Jesus isn't beating us down with this lesson, but saying, come, ask, seek, knock. I want you to talk to me. So let me encourage you with three simple steps. Choose a location in an unbroken time of prayer. I think I've mentioned this several times before, but often what I do because I am distracted is I will go into a room without any clocks or I'll turn them around and then I'll take my phone, I'll put it on do not disturb and I set a timer for like five minutes and I pray until the timer's done because I don't know how long five minutes are and I one of my excuses for not praying is, oh, well, I don't want to miss something I'm supposed to be at. All right, well, there you go. God's given you a phone, so use it. All right, take some time. Find a location. Just say, I'm going to start a pattern of prayer. And really, truly, start with two or three minutes. If you say, you know what, I'm not somebody who prays, just start with two or three minutes and, and, and actually follow the pattern that Jesus gives you. Secondly, when it comes to kind of the right proportions of prayer, let me encourage you to learn to pray the Bible. You say, I don't know what to pray. I need somebody to teach me. Well, God has given you an entire uh, set of books in the Bible, often that include prayers that you can just pray as they are back to God. Open the book of the Psalms, and you can't hardly hit a psalm that isn't a prayer or partially a prayer. So take some time just to pray those things back to you. I was at an ordination council yesterday, and they they asked the man who was under examination, they said, um, how do you make sure that you properly balance all of God's teaching? And he appropriately said, well, you teach all of God's truth, and then you can't help but be balanced. And that is true, isn't it? How do you make sure that your prayer life is balanced? Well, you actually let the words of God teach you how to pray. Pray what he said. And finally, don't forget God in prayer. I mean by that two things. Number one, it's so easy to make prayer literally just a laundry list of what you need from God. But number two, it's easy to forget that in your prayers, you're actually telling God what you think of him. And it's easy to be mindless of that. But like Jesus has pointed us back to multiple times in this passage, that actually is the key issue, isn't it, in prayer? The key issue isn't just isn't knowledge. We don't need like a super long, detailed list of everything we're supposed to pray. It really is, what do you think of God? People who have this kind of view of God are eager to come to Him. And when they do, they find that He's eager for them to come. I want to end with reading a verse of a song that I like a lot. I know the choir has sang it before. Come, my soul, with every care. Listen to these words, and then we'll pray. Come, my soul, with every care. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself bids you to pray and will never turn away. You are coming to a king. Large petitions with you bring. For his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much. Let's learn to pray like this. Accept Christ's invitation and ask and seek and knock this week. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful that you have prompted this prayer. Every prayer, in a sense, is a response to your request that we pray. We don't start this thing, you have. And so we respond to your request by coming to you. I pray especially that you would help us to be people of prayer, like Jesus himself showed, 
a man who it would seem would not need to have dependence on you, and yet he was marked by it. Oh, would we be comfortable being like children at your hand, asking over and over again for our daily and large needs, because you are a good God who always answers us and always answers us in a good way, even if we don't understand all your reasons. So help us to come to you like this, to assign to you these kinds of motives, to trust your heart. In Christ's name.